tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I do a broiled with some onions and tomatoes, and I also do fish tacos with it, which is fantastic. And when I have company over, they never really ask what the fish is until after. They love it, and then I'll say, believe it or not, it was scuff. you got to be kidding me. In 1922, right here at Fenway, Lizzie Murphy made history, the first woman to ever play with major leaguers. Is there wisdom in the Torah that helps you get through this period of in uncertainty? <laughs> There's always wisdom in the Torah that helps me every day, get me through everything. You have faith? Yes. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. Tonight, we begin with a look at the rapidly changing ecosystem in our own Narragansett Bay and what it means for how and what we eat. Over the last few months, our team has partnered with EcoRI News to investigate the state of the bay. We've also talked to those finding new ways to cope with those changes. EcoRI News contributor Mike Stanton has this report part of our continuing Green Seeker series. One summer morning on Narragansett Bay, the trawler John H. Chafee sets out from Fort Wetherall in Jamestown. We're headed for a spot off Scarborough Beach. The crew sets their nets for 100 feet down. But these are not your typical fishermen. I've been doing it for a while now, and honestly, you never know what it's gonna be. Chris Parkins is Chief Biologist for the Rhode Island Department of Environmental Management, or DEM for short. They have been surveying the area's fish since 1979. The longer you do the same thing, you'll notice trends and changes over time. So that's what we are out doing. You know, we're looking for those changes of species diversity, the size of the species, when they arrive, when they leave, um, things like that. Okay, so scup, this is your typical scup. This is a butterfish. These and all these little silver, silver dollar looking things. This is our long fin squid. Any of the small stuff, like silver hake, would just pick a bucket, put them in that bucket. Same thing with squid. So just separate everything by species. And that separation has provided a window on something that looms large, climate change. An early warning sign that the bay was changing came in the 1990s when the popular winter flounder went into sharp decline. Today, this fish has become a poster child of sorts for how warming waters affect cold water fish. Winter flounder are kind of interesting, right? Because their life history is they come into the bay in the wintertime, hence the name, when most of all the other fish are leave. So they had the bay to themselves. With the excess fishing and, and climate change, uh, they've struggled to recover. And climate change produces winners and losers. The winners, warmer water species like scup and black sea bass, which are swimming up from the south in greater numbers. So when you see the changes, you know, with warming waters and, and the, the climate, uh, what worries you? What's the rate at, that, at, at which it's happening? The ocean is notorious for being able to adapt to change, you know, through some pretty significant events in the history of, of Earth. You know, there, we see species that have survived asteroids and things like that. Whereas climate change is happening at such a rapid rate, it's pushing a lot of species out quickly and then the species that are taking their place are changing the uh, structure of the ecosystem. The Northeast U.S. is one of the fastest warming areas in the globe. 
and I think there is cause for concern. Connor McManus, chief of DEM's marine fisheries, calls Narragansett Bay an essential nursery for sea life. But according to a study published last winter in the journal Climate, the bay also lies in one of the fastest warming areas on the planet. How do we as a society and ecosystem effectively adapt to these changes? Um, and really ha has us asking questions of, for the species that are, are maybe climate change losers, how do we build management plans to either help rebuild or maintain these populations that have declined over time? And that's certainly been the case in Narragansett Bay, where temperatures have risen almost three degrees Fahrenheit in the last 60 years. That can be the difference of whether a species is now able to thrive in an environment that it used to not be able to, or conversely, species not being able to spawn or reproduce or survive in an area that they once were able to. The day we went out, the DEM's fishermen scooped up a lot of different things. Crabs, butterfish, skates, and the Rhode Island State appetizer, longfin squid, a.k.a. calamari. But the biggest catch is a fish that some have never heard of. So the scuff total weight is 11.47, 23, 21. Also known as sea bream or porgy, scup is a fish that has been around for centuries. Roger Williams referred to it by its Narragansett name, Mishkapog. Today, while more plentiful thanks to warming waters, many Rhode Islanders have never given it a try. I've made poke bowls with it at home, which is really good, um, but it also makes a really great fish taco. Kate Mazury is the executive director of a Rhode Island nonprofit called Eating with the Ecosystem. And you say that you connect the dots between food systems and the fisheries ecology. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Those food systems and then fishery science kind of happens in two different, almost like silos. There's the fishery science that looks at, you know, the populations of fish and shellfish and how well they're reproducing and all these other factors. Um, and then there's the food system side that it's, you know, looking at how to feed people and creating food plans for the different states. Um, and a lot of times those aren't necessarily linked up. Rhode Island fishermen caught more than 4 million pounds of scup last year, making it the state's top catch among fish. But most is exported to big cities like New York, Philadelphia, and Chicago, with large immigrant communities that favor it. Here in Rhode Island, the demand is low. John Delgado, the seafood buyer for Dave's Supermarkets, is trying to change that. It should be a staple, especially in the New England Northeast area, and it's not. It's definitely underutilized. One reason for that, Delgado says, is that many people are intimidated by having to cook a whole fish, bones and all. We have to take that element out of it to make sure we have a filet, and then the feedback is usually wonderful. Once people try it, Mike, it, it, it comes back as a positive. Wow, I, I thought it was going to be a lot stronger, a lot gamier. It was mild. My children liked it. We used it in this dish or that dish and it becomes family-friendly, children-friendly. I do it broiled with some onions and tomatoes, and I also do fish tacos with it, which is fantastic. And when I have company over, they never really ask what the fish is until after. They love it, and then I'll say, believe it or not, it was scup. You've got to be kidding me. In the dozen or so years that Dave's has carried scup, sales at its 10 stores have climbed from 25 pounds to several hundred pounds a week. Scup is also on the menu at some of Rhode Island's finest restaurants. That's a nice thick piece right there. That's beautiful, right? Ben Sukel is the chef owner of Oberlin in Providence. His downtown restaurant has won national acclaim for his locally sourced seafood. And a critic from Bon Appetit wrote, 
that scup was his new favorite fish. Tonight's preparation will be raw for our crudo, so it'll just be salt, lemon, and this. in this case we're using this olive oil called Arbiquina olive oil. It's a really nice buttery Spanish organic olive oil that we really we always pair with almost all of our fish. Sukel has been serving scup for 15 years. To make it sound more appetizing, he used to call it silver bass. And you get the like the old the old salty ones that come through, and they say like they used to catch this fish and use it for bait, or they would just like kill it right away and like or throw it back right away. I just know the more we keep doing it, the more it seems like that is becoming what people want. Is it a sustainable model to keep eating seafood that's caught far away when we have this abundance of underutilized fish in our own back bay? I mean, I personally don't think so. I think that like for when you're eating local, you're not only like. I guess supporting kind of your local fishing community and the, the local, not just the fishing community, but the full kind of supply chain of like people that are involved in that. But your food's traveling less far before it reaches your plate, which is helping in terms of carbon emissions. Since the pandemic, Masery's group and the Rhode Island Seafood Coalition have worked to connect local fishermen to poorer communities. They created a program that has handed out more than 210,000 pounds of seafood. In 2021, Rhode Island harvested 99 different species alone. That was from commercial fishermen. And so we've got this huge selection of different local seafood species, but a lot of it, there's not as much of a market for it here because consumers kind of aren't demanding it. But some immigrant groups are. And Masery says we can learn a lot from people from far away about how to eat local. I think that there's a lot we can learn from them about adapting our diets to what's actually being produced in our local waters and caught by our local fisheries. Mm -hmm. um, and then beyond that, I think that we can really look to them for how to utilize some of these species and how to prepare them in delicious ways. And that's been true for Liberian immigrants Michael Nior and his wife Esther, who work with and are beneficiaries of the program. To them, SCUP offers a taste of Africa. Is this a fish that you would eat uh, back home in Liberia? Well, yeah, we, we have this one in Liberia, we call it Black Snapper. The Liberia is like an island, so like, we're surrounded by water, the rural island. So like, we have a place called Providence Island, it's in Morovia, so they got the fishermen and the fish, we go there and buy the fish. Then it was time to taste the scup, which is smothered in a sauce of onions, fresh tomatoes, and garlic. I hold the tail to get, I want to get a little of this sauce here. Look how nice and white and flaky it is. Make sure don't eat the bones. And this this sure scup was swimming in the yeah, Narragansett get, Bay a few days yeah, ago. Get the bone out of it and make sure it tastes it. Spicy, huh? Mm. Yeah, spicy. It's really good. Yeah. Really good. And spicy. Mm. Yeah. I could eat this whole fish. Up next, Rhode Islander Jeremy Pena just made history. The Astros star is the first rookie shortstop to ever win the Golden Glove. But there's another Ocean State player whose historic milestone has been all but forgotten. She grew up in Warren and became the first woman ever to play in the major leagues. Tonight, we have the answer to baseball's proverbial question, who's on first? It's the Queen of Diamonds. Here's someone who was told you're a girl, you can't play baseball. But she loved the game. She was, a fine, again, a fine athlete. She, she could run, swim, ice skate with the best in town in Warren. And uh, she wanted to be around the ball players and carried the equipment. But the woman from Warren did more than just carry equipment. She grabbed a glove and went pro. 
Former Harvard librarian Jay Hurd has spent a decade researching the achievements of the female first base player who broke into the men's game. She was born Mary Elizabeth Murphy in 1894. But she became known as Lizzie, and she had another nickname, Spike. And that came around one time when she was playing on a men's team versus another men's team, and they were poking some fun at her, and, and they said, all right, Spike, let's see what you can do, let's see what you can do. And she showed them what she could do. What Lizzie Spike Murphy could do was play ball in the big leagues. She came to be called the queen of baseball. As early as 1910, the Warrentown directory lists Murphy as a baseball player. She was playing with men and impressing them. Newspapers across the country took note. How did she actually start playing baseball? Well, with, through her brother. They would gather at uh, whatever the local sandlot was here in Warren, Rhode Island. And uh, she started playing with them. And finally, she was old enough when they said, oh, and they needed a player. Lizzie, can you cover first base? They noticed her ability. And soon she was being called up to play on the mill teams. Murphy was raised in a big family next to one of Warren's red brick mills. Her home was where Tom's Market now stands. She would love to clean the rugs. It was part of how she stayed in shape. She would get her baseball bat, put the rugs over a clothesline, and just <laughs> beat, <laughs> beat the dust out of the rugs. <laughs> so it was her destiny to be a ball player? Oh, it, it, through and through. Scouted while playing on the mill team, Murphy was recruited by a semi-pro ball club, the Providence Independents. Then she joined Carr's Boston All-Stars, who barnstormed the Northeast in Canada. Heard says she played 100 games a summer for some 20 years. Her fielding was excellent. She was not a power hitter, and she often went 0 for 2, 0 for 3, but she hit well enough uh, to, to be kept on the team, and her defense was outstanding. She wasn't short, maybe short compared to some of the other ball players on the team. Um, she had red hair, which she kept up under her cap. Murphy knew she was a novelty, yet she had the confidence to promote her status on an all-male team. She wore her name on the front of her uniform and sold picture postcards and autographs to fans after the game. Well, one of the things that I, I think really sums it up about her is that she avoided frivolity. She was a very serious person. She was committed to playing baseball, and that's what she wanted to do. Yes, she had her doubts early on as to what she was supposed to do with her life. Those doubts likely surfaced because women in the early 1900s, and to this very day, don't play on men's baseball teams. But Hurd says Murphy decided she just couldn't sit on the bench. Did the guys accept her? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One of, one of the funny things about the guys accepting, she, she says that she, yes, there was a lot of cursing, but she knew all the words, so she was okay with it. She may not have used the words herself, but she was one of the, the men, one of the guys on the team. She was a teammate. So they, once she proved that she could play, they stood up for her. In fact, they backed her when she made a strike for equal rights. The guys were getting paid five bucks a game, and even though Murphy was a big draw, she was not paid. So one day, she refused to play for a huge crowd expected in Newport. And it was a big game. When it came time to getting on the bus, she told the manager, no pay, no Newport. No, yeah, no pay, no play, basically. And uh, he said, well, all right. 
she deserves the money. So you know, he, here's $5 for your game, and you can split the receipts with us. So she got on the bus, and there she was, the first professional baseball holdout. <laughs> and her story was about to get bigger than the green monster. In 1922, right here at Fenway, Lizzie Murphy made history, the first woman to ever play with major leaguers. Murphy stepped up to the plate against the Boston Red Sox for the American League All-Stars exhibition game at Friendly Fenway. At the oldest ballpark in the country, 100 years ago this season, she played two innings. And what was the score? How did it end up? Well, her team won. <laughs> wait a minute, knows. wait a minute. Do the Boston Red Sox know that they were beaten by a girl? Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> Why is it her story hasn't been told a lot and people don't know her? Well, I'll, I'll be honest about this and say because she's a woman. And that was one thing that uh, people could not abide. They, could, they, could, they believed women cannot play baseball. And she, she uh, debunked that myth. Heard continues sorting through the lore and legend of Murphy. There is a small archive at Warren's George Hale Free Library. It is known Murphy got hits off this slim bat, one of the few pieces of the Pioneer's memorabilia in the trophy case of Warren's Sports Hall of Fame inside Town Hall. But the career end for the trailblazer came when Murphy retired from baseball at age 40. Two years later, she married mill supervisor Walter Larravee. After he died a few years later, she went to work on oyster boats along Warren's docks. Murphy never spoke much about her past. The speculation always had been that she was just angry and bitter about her life. Uh, I tend to believe, again, using the knowledge that she wasn't one to, to go out and party, uh, that she missed the game. There is a, a mention of in an in a interview that she was very proud of what she had done once someone told her that she had been the first woman to play at Fenway. or She was very proud of that, but she wasn't one to boast. And for all her claim to fame, there is little mention of Lizzie Murphy at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Even her gravesite in Warren makes no mention of her illustrious career. Her tombstone is simply marked Elizabeth Larravee. She died at age 70 in 1964, but Heard says her legacy stands tall in the field of sports history. This is a woman who, even before women were allowed to vote, stood up, just was not afraid to, to say, I love baseball, and, and she went and played it. Finally, we revisit a real estate dispute threatening to upend more than 100 years of Jewish tradition in Newport. We're talking about the historic Toro Synagogue, the oldest synagogue in the United States. Contributing reporter David Wright has been closely following the saga and has an update to a story he filed earlier this year. The oldest synagogue in North America, dedicated in 1763, Turo Synagogue is a national historic site and a national treasure. It's also the focus of a bitter dispute. Who are trying to evict them? What we need to do is have a regime change, and that is true. 
Louis Solomon is president of Congregation Sheriff Israel of New York, the oldest Jewish congregation in America, the landlord. The tenant for more than a century is Congregation Jesuit Israel of Newport. Louise Ellen Tights is their president. Sheriff Israel did indeed file an eviction action, and it was filed to evict Congregation Jesuit Israel. I suppose family feuds are inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a lovely way to describe it. The relationship between these two Orthodox congregations was first formalized in this lease, signed in 1903, at the annual rent of $1 due on the 1st of February. Turo Synagogue is a testament to Rhode Island's colonial heritage as a bastion of religious freedom, part of Roger Williams' legacy. Also, a century later, when America's founding fathers were still debating the Bill of Rights, it was an important reminder to protect religious liberty. George Washington visited Newport in 1790. The Newport Synagogue wrote to him, thanking God for creating a government which to bigotry gives no sanction, to persecution no assistance. In his reply, Washington echoed that language adding his own fervent wish that Jews should enjoy continued prosperity and peace in the United States. It's probably one of the most important Jewish places of worship. At the end of the day, the Jews are not about places. At the end of the day, the Jews are people of the book. Our place in Jerusalem was burned down, was 2,000 years ago. We've been wandering a whole lot since. So I don't want to overestimate, overstate, the importance of place. But in the history of American Judaism, it's a very important place. The building is architecturally significant too, designed by Peter Harrison, who's credited with bringing the Palladian style to the colonies. His other projects include the Redwood Library in Newport, Christ Church in Cambridge, King's Chapel in Boston, and St. Paul's Chapel in Lower Manhattan. Yes, it's a Peter Harrison classic. Yes, it's where the Washington letter is associated with, but more importantly, it's integrated into the, the history of the local Newport Jewish congregation and, and more broadly, the Jewish Rhode Island community. That Rhode Island Jewish community has had ups and downs. In the early part of the 19th century, the Jewish population in Newport dwindled and eventually died. And then in the, the 1880s, Newport had a Jewish population that was largely coming from Eastern Europe and Russia, and the synagogue was reopened then, and Congregation Jesuit Israel was established in 1894. We really have used it all the time. There are people here who have grown up here whose grandparents worshiped here like mine. I was married in this synagogue. I sit where my mother used to sit, my cousin Rita Sloan sits next to me. She was the first woman president of the congregation. Both sides agree it's really over the past 10 years or so that the relationship soured. The feud started in 2012 when the Newporters tried to sell a set of valuable silver bells called Rimonim, cast by a Jewish colonial silversmith who was a contemporary of Paul Revere. The New Yorkers objected. The Newporters pushed back. The U.S. District Court in Rhode Island was sympathetic to the Newporters' claim, but that decision did not stand up on appeal. 
the opinion written by Justice David Souter, who retired from the U.S. Supreme Court shortly after President Obama took office. As a retired justice, Souter regularly hears cases by designation for the First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston. In an opinion he wrote for the First Circuit in 2016, Justice Souter found that Congregation Jesuit Israel is a holdover tenant, essentially a tenant who remains on a property after the lease has expired. The legal battle over the synagogue went all the way to the highest court in the land. The U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear the case in 2019, leaving intact Justice Souter's opinion for the Court of Appeals that the New York congregation owns the synagogue and the Newport congregation are merely tenants. That ruling remanded the case back to the district court in Newport. In August, that court dismissed the eviction based on a technicality. But the New Yorkers have now filed for eviction again. It's not a simple David versus Goliath fight. There's a lot of bad blood. For instance, Congregation Jesuit Israel gave permission for one of its benefactors to be buried in the historic Jewish cemetery, which has been closed for 200 years. The benefactor took them up on it a lot sooner than expected. We were as surprised as Sheriff Israel when they brought a crane and lowered the actual monument. Normally a gravestone doesn't go in until the person has passed away. And, and he's still alive, right? Yes, and we hope he won't need his gravestone for many, many years to come. That's a sacred place, okay? And I knew nothing about what they were doing there until I saw some picture that came over the wire and a congregant of theirs called me and said, you're not going to believe this. There's a crane at this, at this sacred little, little cemetery and they're putting a new, like, thing in there. The monument has since been removed, but in terms of trust and goodwill, damage done. We are going to have a new congregation, a Newport, Rhode Island congregation, who is going to become the new tenant, okay? The people who are worshiping there are going to all remain the same, but the rabbi, if he wishes, can stay if he wishes. If he doesn't want to, then we'll find another rabbi. But this idea that, that you know, your landlord kicks you out and so you don't have the space anymore, that's a misnomer. That's not what's happening, okay? What we're talking about are a few people who run Jesuit Israel. We think they are no longer doing that in the best interests of Turo Synagogue. From a Rhode Island standpoint, it's tempting to look at this as here you've got this group that's been in place for a good long time. Modest little synagogue, uh, congregation who've been worshiping in this historic place and here the big bad absentee landlord in New York is coming to swoop in and kick them out. Right. Is that wrong? It is, it is wrong. It is wrong. Why don't, why don't you think about it in, in a different way? When there was nobody here we took care of the place and we're not going to let bad things happen to it because a minority of the people who are there worshiping now don't want to actually follow what the judge said three years ago. For Rabbi Mark Mandel and his congregation Jesuit Israel, it's an unsettling time. The rabbi gave me a tour of the historic synagogue, including its most precious treasure, a 500-year-old Torah scroll written on deerskin. So this is older than the synagogue? Oh, yes, several hundred years. 
They keep it open to the passage about Moses parting the Red Sea during the Exodus. The calligraphy there underscoring that message. So it looks like an ocean there, so to speak, with the people going in between. The rabbi hopes he won't have to lead his congregation on an exodus from Turo Synagogue. Is there wisdom in the Torah that helps you get through this period of in uncertainty? <laughs> There's always wisdom in the Torah that helps me every day, get me through everything. You have faith? Yes. Like the Jews in the desert made it to the promised land that we'll be able to do the same. And that's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm Michelle San Miguel. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you. Good night.